So good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to this session. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the Ndrangheta, that is the Calabrian Mafia in East Germany. And if you've not been following what this mafia has been doing in the past, let's say, at least few decades, it might sound weird to you to think about why are we even talking about such a niche topic? Why are we talking about a mafia which comes from Italy? And why are we talking about its presence, not just in Germany, but in a very specific place in uh, East Germany? And uh, over the Following, I think, half an hour, 45 minutes, you will uh, actually start understanding why. Why is East Germany such an important place for us to understand uh, the international expansion of one of the very localized mafia, which comes from the very south of Italy, uh, in a very little place, in a very little region, and how this mafia has been uh, over the past uh, 15, 20, 30 years uh, expanding uh, around Europe. Uh, but not only, we will see how uh, the network actually goes uh, as far as Australia, as far as Latin America, and we will see how all of that comes together in Germany. My name is uh, Zora Hauser. I am a researcher at the University of Oxford, and I will be moderating uh, this panel. And I'm very happy to have uh, the two, I would say, most knowledgeable uh, journalists today in Germany uh, that have been studying uh, organized crime, but specifically Italian mafias in the country that they live and about uh, which they report uh, every day. So we're having Margherita Bettoni. Margherita is an investigative journalist. She's also a book author. She's authored several books. Uh, she's been researching the Italian mafia in Germany and in Italy, obviously, as well, for uh, almost a decade. And she has received multiple awards for her work. So welcome, uh, Margherita. It's good to have you here. And we're going to have also uh, David Glaubert with us today. He's a political editor and investigative reporter for FAZ. Uh, that's uh, one of the major um, newspaper in uh, Germany. And he is specialized in organized crime in Italian mafias in Germany, but not just in Germany. And we will see, for example, uh, his work uh, in, uh, in Portugal that uh, has been uh, relevant, will be relevant for what we're discussing. And I guess also your expertise in Brazil, I will ask you you about that as well. Um, David speaks uh, Portuguese and Italian, Ger uh, Margherita speaks uh, German and Italian and several other languages, but those are the ones that are relevant for us today. Um, they have worked together on a very interesting project, on a documentary about the Calabrian Mafia and especially its expansion into East Germany. So I'm going to hand over to Margherita now. Uh, to introduce us a little bit um, into this world of the documentary while I'm trying to share my screen because we will watch a few minutes of the documentary just now. Please, Margarita. Thank, thank you, Zora. Thank you very much. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining our panel today. We are now going to show you like the first couple of minutes of our documentary, Mafia Colonies Germany, German Unity, German Unity's Blind Spot. Our investigative documentary traces how and when alleged member of the Calabrian Mafia moved to Eastern Germany at the, after, right after the fall of the Berlin Wall. We worked on this investigation for almost, let's say, two and a half years. And during our investigation, we uncovered a still widely unknown anti-mafia case against, against the Ndrangheta uh, that took place in East Germany at the beginning of the 2000s. 
This case and the wiretap conversation that investigator collected back then allowed us to take a closer look at uh, how alleged members of the Calabrian Mafia operated in the East German states of Thuringia and Saxony after the fall of the Berlin Wall. This documentary was aired by the German public broadcaster IAD in 2021, and it's a product of, the, of a cooperation with the daily newspaper Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, which David is representing here today. And just one last thing before we let you watch the, the first takes from our documentary. You see two of us here today, but our team is also made by uh, Axel Hemmerling and Ludwig Kenzia, our colleagues that couldn't be here today. I just wanted to mention them too, because without them, this documentary wouldn't even exist. So enjoy watching. Over 50 shots rang out across Duisburg one night in August 2007. The Indrangheta were demonstrating to the Germans that they could kill people here too. The world's most powerful mafia organization had long since established itself in Germany, almost undetected. While Germans were still celebrating the fall of the Berlin Wall and German reunification and slowly reorganizing their police force, the mafia were setting their sights on the former Eastern Bloc. We are investors. We are like an institution. We create structures. We stick to our territory. If we don't get results, then we try somewhere else. Somewhere, we'll get what we're after. Ecco perché non si registra mio modo di vedere. In some areas, you can see that no Indrangheta initiatives arise without a plan. The Indrangheta doesn't act without a plan. In order to understand the phenomenon of the Indrangheta and its expansion drive, we travel to Calabria the birthplace of the worldwide criminal cartel. The southern tip of Italy is the home of the Andrangheta. Just a stone's throw away across the Messina Strait is where the Sicilian Mafia, the Cosa Nostra, rules. In its shadow, the Andrangheta has grown to be one of the most dangerous criminal organizations in the world. We, a team from the MDR TV station and the Frankfurter Allgemeine newspaper, have analyzed numerous files which were previously secret or thought lost. We have met with Italian and German investigators dedicated to fighting organized crime. Most of our talks were confidential. This is the first time that such a deep insight into the colonization of the East has been possible. We are especially interested in clans from San Luca who have chosen Thuringia as a base. We find structures the Andrangheta uses to secure their power and launder drug money. San Luca is an inconspicuous mountain village in the Aspromonte Massif. Few tourists make it this far. The Andrangheta does not flaunt its wealth. Italian investigators say that over 40 families here are involved with the Andrangheta, but can only prove it in court in a few cases. However, San Luca plays a major role in the criminal structure of the organization. So it's, it's always interesting to see the documentary again. I've seen it before um, and uh, looking at it, the first question that really comes to my mind is we've seen San Luca. We've seen this little village in Calabria where we know that the historic heart of this criminal organization that has existed for more than 150 years is. Um, but you did a documentary about Turinja. So it says in the documentary, we chose Thuringia. We decided to make the documentary about East Germany. That's Thuringia is a region for those of, who, of you that don't know Germany that well, is a region in East Germany. So Margarita, maybe you can tell us a little bit, how did this idea come about? Why did you decide to do a documentary about East Germany, about Thuringia, and not just do a documentary about San Luca, for example? Yeah, well, first of all, 
let's let's put it that way why why we chose east germany at the beginning and not the west first of all like a lot of italians came to west germany as working migrants back in the 50s which is 80 years ago which makes it hard to investigate who came and with with what purpose back then. In East Germany, we are talking about a migration that took place 30 years ago, because of course the Italians had to wait for the Berlin Wall to fall to get there. So it's like a more recent phenomenon, which makes it easier to, to investigate, even if easy, it's not really the proper word to put it, but easier. Uh, secondly, you have to imagine how a city like Erfurt looked like at uh, the beginning of the 90s, so after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, East Germany was back then was was in a state of decadence. Take Erfurt, for example, the capital, the capital city of Thuringia. Its beautiful city center was like really in a state of decay which means that everyone who wanted to invest in the city center was very much welcome. And that's exactly what the Italian did. They came, the Calabrians we are talking about, they came to, to East Germany in the mid nineties and they started opening restaurants there. And you can imagine that's how the, the former major of Erfurt put it, talking to us like they were happy about everyone wanting to invest because like the Italians were opening this restaurant, which meant tax money, for example, and which meant having like a flourishing flourishing city center and who wouldn't want to have it for for its own town for his own town and uh, that's on the same hand one reason also because people maybe because the people who, who should have done it at the very beginning didn't like had a closer look at where this money were coming from so we had this very interesting situation and we really was willing to take a closer look at all of that because it was kind of interesting and also, of course, because we, we knew that there was a, like a very, um, let's say, well-based Ndrangheta presence in the state of Turinja. We knew it also from, from formal and, investigations. And correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it is quite interesting because you mentioned restaurants, right? So uh, if you just look at the restaurants, you would not notice anything different from these restaurants and completely normal restaurants, pizzerias and Italian, uh, Italian ice cream shops, for example. But if you look behind, if you look at the story that is behind it, you would sometimes find waiters uh, that have a very low salary and within months just invest a lot of money into these restaurants. Or you would find uh, in Erfurt situations in which a restaurant would be abandoned maybe for some time because it doesn't make any business reason to really invest in it. But then these families have arrived or these, these, these people have arrived and started to systematically invest, right? This is what you found in... Uh... Absolutely, absolutely. But, but then the question is, if, if on paper, if on the surface, uh, it looks like so normal, how do you um, go about finding the information? How do you research what's the structure behind, which is so well hidden? So maybe David, you can you can tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, there have been like we we didn't start from zero. There have been some stories about the mafia being there in Erfurt. It was like after we saw it at the beginning of the of our film was the so-called massacre of of Duisburg, where six people. Afterwards, we knew it was uh, members of the Drangheta who had been shot by other members of the Drangheta because of a bloody feud going on in the city, in the uh, in San Luca, in this little village. And it, this like was the first time that investigators in Germany actually looked deep into the structures or tried to find out. 
And this was also when they found connections to Erfurt. They found um, the day after the massacre, they, the Italian police, they listened to a call going to a restaurant in Erfurt. There have been uh, family connections to Erfurt. And so like this was the first time that it became public. Um, that investigators um, had even before been looking into the the restaurants and uh, networks in Erfurt. And there were uh, also journalistic publications. There were stories of uh, the Ndrangheta going to, to Eastern Germany after the fall of the wall. And there were um, what in the end, in my opinion, turned out more as a myth. There is this infamous call of one Ndrangheta boss telling another, okay, directly after the fall of the wall, go to Eastern Germany and invest as much as you can, as you can and buy everything, everything, everything. So this is a quote you find in a lot of journalistic, but also other papers who that talk about them, Dangita in Eastern Germany. But um, then we decided, okay, this looks quite interesting. We want to look deeper into it. Um, and this story, like as we said as you said before like we found this structure structures there but it wasn't like uh the stories were the myth is that they went there with bags full of money and bought like entire streets of of houses so um yes i think i think this is a really important point because um i've been researching the presence of the calabria Ndrangheta in germany as well for quite uh, some time and at the beginning uh, really what i found in terms of information was very alarmist was very superficial um either just ignoring the whole phenomenon for a very long time and then just from one day to the other saying that the mafia is everywhere that it has basically control in germany Germany and and the reality um, is somewhere in between, right? These structures they do exist, they are in Germany, they are relevant, but they're not pervasive, they're not everywhere, really. So um, maybe here, um, I'd, I'd like to go back to Margherita. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what do we know about Ndrangheta in Germany? Um, when we say that this organization is in Germany, are these cells or um, what do we find? Uh, are these people that operate independently? Are they organized in a structure? What do we know about the presence of the Ndrangheta in Germany generally? Yeah, well, first of all, we know that Ndrangheta is an historical presence in Germany, which is not as long as getting as back in time as it is in other places like Australia, for example. But here in Germany, we have this present probably since we, we don't know exactly the starting moment yet, unfortunately, but we can imagine it has been some time in the 60s, at the, between the 60s and the 70s. And we know that there is a strong uh, presence here in Germany in several states, like in the south, for example, in Baden-Württemberg, in Bavaria, in Rhine-Westfalen, in, in western Germany, in Rhine-Landpfalz, also in, in the state of Thuringia, of course, in the east, in Saxony, as I was mentioning, in Hessen. So you see in several regions throughout Germany. And you have to think about this, uh, this structure, like you were asking about the structure. And yes, the Ndrangheta is very, very well structured in Italy as well as in Germany. And here in Germany, the Ndrangheta is organized, I would say, almost in the same way it is in Italy. So you have like, like this basis unity, the Ndrina, which is like, a, let's say, like a group. In some cases, like in the case of Turingia, we are looking into of 
blood members or family family blood members clan almost exactly almost a clan exactly put it like that and um, they are this is something we uncovered actually during our documentary it was unknown to the public before and also it was unknown to us <laughs> before we uncovered it even if we heard about theories about this it's that the, the drangheta in germany uh, built up something which is called crimine di germania which is like let's say um, let's put it like that it's a structure which is there to to um to prevent uh, episodes like the Duisburg massacre to happen again so it's there to 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 look for peace amongst the different clans for example and there is a similar structure in Italy as well which is called the Crimina di Polsi Polsi is a place close to San Luca which is the hometown to the core group of people we were looking into during our investigation and there is like an exchange between these two crimini. And what we also know, for example, we are talking when we are talking about Turinja, about Drangheta clan, Drangheta clans actually coming from San Lucas, I was saying. And you have to imagine they are really strictly, not strictly, let's say, because they operate also on themselves. It is not that they have to report about everything they do to Italy, but there is still a strong connection between them and the motherhood, let's say, in San Luca, in the city of San Luca. So the way we have to imagine this is that there is an organization in, in Italy, in Calabria, um, which is structured around these clans, and these clans are independent to a certain extent, but then they're also coordinating uh, to a certain extent. And I find it fascinating that what we see in Germany is that the same structure, basic structure, is replicated exactly. So you have clans, they cooperate, they sometimes don't cooperate, they sometimes are in competition, and Duisburg has shown that when things go wrong, it can get bloody in Germany as much as it is the case in Calabria. But that was a mistake, really, uh, right, David? We haven't seen violence in uh, in Germany connected to uh, to the Ndrangheta specifically, but more generally to Italian mafias. What would you say? Yeah, sure. Like the Italian mafia, or especially the Calabrian mafia, they understood that when there is blood, when there are uh, dead people lying on the ground, like we had after the Duisburg massacre, then the investigators take them serious and then they start to investigate and in the end they interrupt the business so mm-hmm. um, i think that what what's make what makes the Ndrangheta maybe even more dangerous than other crime groups because they understood okay we we have to be quiet and then we can do do our business and then we we can entrench deeply into the society what we saw what happened in 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 Erfurt because um they were and they are still nowadays very well connected in in the city of Erfurt they have the restaurants where the mayor goes where the the state governor of Thuringia went uh, to have lunch so they are very well connected and they know okay if we um if we kill someone if if we do crimes like this on the street then police will look at us and if we don't they don't but um nonetheless and this like the newest operations probably will be talking about operation eureka eureka that happened in may this year it showed they nonetheless they have the weapons and nonetheless they they use the massacre of san luca for example they use it um to to show their power to others and and say okay they are the ones we are the ones uh connected to san luca so uh we are to take seriously 
Yeah, so so even if they don't do it, they are still quite dangerous. Yes, it's really interesting. Some groups use less violence, but that doesn't mean that they are uh, less entrenched in a certain system. And exactly because uh, as a result of not using violence, they don't get prioritized by the police very often, uh, which rightly so as well is focusing on immediate threats uh, to, for example, the life of other people. But that basically allows certain structures to grow over time. So when, when you're speaking about the structures in Erfurt, uh, but not just those, also the structures of the Ndrangheta more generally in Germany, they, uh, Margarita, you said it traced back to the 60s and 70s, and most of these clans, they have been operative all this time without interruption. Um, and sometimes the police looked at them. So we do have operations that kind of uncover uh, parts of the business. But then again, there's nothing for many years and these structures just remain on the territory. And, uh, and, and this is what makes it so difficult also to collect information for us because the attention of the police is always on and off. And we work very much with obviously what the police um, uh, is doing in terms of investigative work. Uh, so maybe... Yeah, going back to this um, uh, aspect of uh, of the talk today, which is how do we find this information? Um, me as a researcher for my publications, you for your documentary, for your um, for your uh, investigative pieces that are published in the newspaper. Uh, Margarita, maybe you want to tell us a little bit about how you go about finding sources. What are these sources? Where do you find them? Well, we we really take like a wide approach when we started working on our investigation because we were looking at something a phenomenon that took place 30 years ago because we concentrated on how and when the, the drangets arrived in eastern germany so of course it was something back in time and we really had like to take a wide approach because we couldn't like just rely on first-hand documents at the very beginning. Mm. So we, uh, for example, of course, we we have uh, police sources. We have sources like, I would say, not even only police, but we have like sources amongst investigators as we are investigative journalists. And as you were saying, since we cannot infiltrate Ndrangheta ourselves, and it's very difficult to find someone from Ndrangheta willing to talk to, to you. I mean, there are, of course, um, how do you call them? Uh, whistleblower, uh, how do you call it? Kronzeugen. Um, um, state witness, witnesses. State witness, thank you. Yeah. You have, of course, state witnesses. But in this case, in the case of the Sanduk Ndrangheta in East Germany, there were, when we were working into it, almost no one uh, who could say something about it so we were talking of course to our sources but we did also a lot of archive work like we went for example into the newspaper archive into the press archive and like looked for all articles that had been published about Italian restaurants in Thuringia and in Saxony back then we then had a look of course at also old court cases we made also do you call it FOIA so freedom of information mm -hmm. requests also here in Germany to get access to to all documents we talked to a lot of people who knew, like, for example, let's say in Erfurt, Erfurt, it's not that, that big city. It's a city, but still not that big. So we were also able to talk to people who, who could remember, uh, like when, when the first Calabrian guys arrived in Germany, arrived there in, in Turingia, and 
we could talk to them about them. And of course, we did a lot of field work in both Italy and Germany. Like uh, I traveled several times to Italy. We traveled several times to Italy uh, during the two years we had been working on the investigation. We also traveled a lot to Northern Westfalen, uh, which is like the, um, the place where some of the guys that came to Turingia were living before coming there. So we made a lot of field work. But I have to say it wasn't easy. As said, our like goal at the beginning was to find out a little bit more about this widely unknown investigation and we only had a name that took place at the beginning of the 2000 I guess in Drangheta and Thuringia and Saxony and we had just a name and a case number and a new case investigation number and we were hoping to get a little bit more about it what we couldn't imagine was that we would end up having like thousands of pages uh, connected to the investigation and that we could have access to like hundreds. This is uh, investigation FIDO, Operation FIDO, exactly. right? Exactly. This is Operation FIDO, which is like at the center of our investigation because it just gave us the possibility through hundreds of wiretap conversations to really take a closer look at how these alleged Drangheta members operated and how their business activity were built up. So it was very, very interesting. So it ended up being the focus of our work. And this, this operation, though, never really... Uh, went for court, right? Exactly. It was stopped at some point. Uh, David, can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, like it was a really big operation trying to look into the structures. So mm -hmm. they did really, they started like from, from zero. They like had some names for coming from, because many of the alleged Ndrangheta uh, members in Erfurt had been in Duisburg and other cities of Germany before they went. To, to Eastern Germany, and then they started to to investigate and did a lot, like as Margarita said, a lot of wiretap conversations. They uh, were looking at the restaurants. They were, um, what we then found out, they even um, managed to infiltrate um, at least one, probably more undercover agents, like around the group. Unfortunately, we couldn't find out the exact details because an undercover operation is <laughs> always uh, very dangerous. And like it was really hard even to, like it took years, Axel and, and Ludwig have been investigating the case for really re years now, to more than 10 years now. And then it was really hard to get the sources to give us information. But then we found out, okay, they had this undercover source quite closely. Um, around this Drangheta group and this is something very special because usually never ha never happens because they usually don't trust uh, anyone but their own family so it was a really like a really good well-planned uh, operation in my opinion and it was like the the police from the state of Thuringia it was the the German federal police working together and of course together with the Italian colleagues and yeah, they like they were working for more or less two years, and like we had also we had uh, access to documents of of meetings or like the protocols of the meetings, and there we found out like they were the main investigators were talking about okay, probably we'll need five years to uh, to find uh, like to to get something to to be able to bring them before court because. They like what they heard, for example, in the wiretaps, like it proved their suspicion and the suspicion was, okay, the money that is invested in in all these restaurants in, in Erfurt and around Erfurt uh, comes from from the Drangheta is probably drug money. 
that is being laundered in this way. Um, and there were a lot of hints like proving this. Um, they were talking about, you see, uh, we heard it before in the, in, the, in, the, in the start of the film. They say, okay, we are investors. We are not just uh, restaurant owners. And then they, you, you can see, but when they talk, you can hear they, it's a system. It's not like one restaurant and then the brother or the cousin opens another one, but it's a system. They all are are together it's like one like one big working like one big company even then when later on they invested in in portugal as well like coming from from airford so um they had a lot of hints and it looked like it was proven but it's really hard and at this time legislation in germany was even harder for investigators than it's nowadays because like to prove that uh, it's actually money laundering, they 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 you have to prove. Or at this time, it's a bit easier today, but still very very difficult um, concerning money laundering here in Germany. They have to prove that like if you buy a restaurant for five hundred thousand euros, then you have to prove that exactly this money comes from another crime, and you have to prove what's from the crime. Exact crime, exactly. Yeah. But but the crime problem might be okay. It's a cocaine shipment going from uh, Ecuador going to Gioia Tauro in Italy. So it's nearly impossible very, for... It's very difficult to prove that. For, as I understand it, you really have to prove which drug deal is financing exactly yeah. which amount uh, of money that has been invested in the, in the yeah. in pizzeria. And that exact link cannot be yeah. general. It has to be an exact link. So, so Margarita, can you tell us a little bit more? Uh, David spoke about it, uh, the system, you know, mm -hmm. there is a system behind it. Uh, can you explain what it means? Also, because we've been speaking now about effort, but um, investment of this group of people is not just uh, limited to the area of effort. So you found out, uh, all of you together as a team, um, that the network of investment is much broader than just one city in Germany. It is indeed, yeah. I also prepared some of the wiretap conversation and I'm going to read to you some of them because I think that explains it a little bit, a little bit more like in a concrete way. Because when we first read the wiretap conversation of these alleged Ndrangheta members, we were really surprised to see how they were really bubbling with ideas, how busy they were like looking for new places to invest in money into. Like some of them were literally literally flying through, through the world to Barcelona, for example, to see if they could buy a pizzeria for, I think, 2 million German mark or to Prague or even to the US. So they were really like uh, jet setting through the world looking for places to open. And they weren't just, like, as David was already saying, they weren't just blindly investing in some random places. It's of course difficult to state that for sure, like we cannot know for sure. But reading the wiretap conversation, we had the impression that they were really following a plan as David was saying. For example, in one wiretap conversation, one of the core figures of the group say to a business partner, we keep what we have in Erfurt, Leipzig as future because it's still a virgin city. The Leipzig project is a long lasting one. For the one of, amongst you who doesn't know it, Leipzig is one of the most populous cities in the state of Saxony. And it's also one of the cities where the alleged Ndrangheta members started opening restaurants after they already opened several in Erfurt. And uh, as you see, they talk about Leipzig being a virgin city, meaning probably we can just 
only alleged it being virgin because still not being touched by the Ndrangheta or still not having this like big Italian restaurant networks that they were planning to open there. So as you see, it sounds like the group was following a strategy. As the same guy put it in another occasion, David already told them, told it like they were talking about them, about investors. And in one wiretap conversation, the same guy says, if we wanted to be simple restaurateur, we would have opened a small restaurant with 10 tables, but we are investors. So you see they were willing to invest money to, to build up a flourishing business. Then there are like some other wiretap conversation, like get, getting back to a person close to the group, talking to the same guy. And it, all, it talks like about, they talk about secret operations and even about money hidden somewhere under the ground. Uh, and then there is one one last interesting thing is that this guy that were coming from Calabria, like these uh, uh, alleged Trangheta members, they were apparently re relying on two guys, non-Calabrian, for this business operation. In a wiretap conversation, the same guy I was talking now the, the, the whole time, not all the whole time, but in the most cases, he said um, to to um, to another business partner. He's mentioning clear, he clearly mentioned that they are using the, the he called it the malicious system. And malicious is the nickname he was using for these other non-Calabrian guys. It, it's like they needed someone to uh, financial with financial skills to help them. And you were already saying, Zora, that we can't, we like this network was not active in only in Turinja, but also in some other places. And indeed, we, we can, I was saying already, they were bubbling with ideas and looking for places to open money. And during our investigation, we tried to trace how many companies were connected to those guys back, uh, back then. So back after the fall of the Berlin Wall in the 90s until today and we really find hundreds of companies and not only in uh, Germany but also in Italy and in Portugal for example and even in Spain so we could really find over 100 companies connect allegedly connected to them we could either find in some cases like the direct connection and in other cases through other guys who were circling around them too. Yes that's that's incredibly um, interesting uh, trying to really map out uh, how far this network goes and and the difficulty of them bringing it all together with hardcore evidence because that evidence is is, is always scattered across uh, different places so you really have to puzzle it uh, together now um, David I know that um, you would like to also show some more maybe uh, of your documentary you tell me when it's a good moment or you want to yeah I think you can do it now you can do okay. it now. I think that um, it's another part um, that shows also how well entrenched they were in uh, Duisburg, uh, in Duisburg in Erfurt. I think, it, yeah, if you start there, more or less, yeah. some seconds further about this. Yeah, exactly. Two years previously crop up again. According to those files, it was important for the Locriti clans to keep all their businesses in the family to reduce the danger of being betrayed. None of the suspects from back then is willing to comment today. In fact, one of them tried to get a lawyer to block our report. The old files show that the cooperation between Italy and Germany was quite extensive. The Carabinieri even sent an investigator to airport to scout out the restaurants. But their businesses were booming, and it was difficult to prove that they were financed with drug money. The police apparently had an undercover agent in the group. The operation had a promising beginning, but was hampered by a fear of betrayal, and for good reason. 
Air Force Italians clearly had the best contacts in politics and the judiciary. There's a judge here in the restaurant with his wife. He's waiting for you. The judge has just arrived. Tell him to wait five minutes. I've got to give him something. He's here. I know, I'm coming. I'll bring the thing for the judge. In addition, local Air Force VIPs were regularly invited to the Calabrian homeland, to weddings, for instance. The guests were put up in hotels and given VIP treatment in fancy bars. The same went for the participants in a business trip. Investigators say a Christian Democrat city councilor from Airfort, an investigating magistrate, and the manager of a Sparkasa bank all attended the trip. But allegedly, the files no longer exist. Yeah, so I think that's... You can cut it Fine, you can then, cut it That's Perfect. Thank incredibly, you. incredibly interesting. So um, just the, the last few seconds, right, where uh, you were listing all of the people that had been in contact uh, uh, with, this, with this network and had been invited to Calabria to, uh, to take part of what are uh, events that we might look at uh, as not being relevant, you know, a wedding uh, is not that relevant. But in fact, uh, what we know about these organizations is that uh, exactly these um, uh, events and happenings, which have a symbolic value almost of meaning you're part of the family, that's why you get invited uh, to a wedding, are really, really relevant. So what, what did we have? We have a magistrate, we have a Sparkasse, that's a bank, uh, representative, so we and we have politicians. So what we we have basically uh, almost the whole legal world is represented from business to politics to the judiciary as well. And we're speaking here about Germany, not about Calabria. So can can you can you also tell us uh, like what does it mean? Does that mean uh, corruption? Or how should we think about this? I don't know, uh, David or Margarita, you, you decide who wants to take this question. I could say something about... Go yeah. for it, David. Like, like we... Corruption in there, like the, the straight way, we didn't like we didn't find corruption in the straight way, like uh, someone paying someone for, for a favor. Mm -hmm. um, even the the phone call we, we listened to about the church, because they were friends to a, to a church, who wasn't like directly involved, but um, and even politicians were going there for their restaurant. There was like one one time the police stormed the one of the restaurants. Um, they went in there, and then there was the governor and the minister of interior of the state of Thuringia were sitting there and discussing their <laughs> politics. So um, it sh this shows like they are very well connected. Um, I wouldn't say this corruption, like what we found out is more people were looking very naive at this. Like they, okay, oh, I just got, got a sip to drink or a coffee and uh, I always paid my food. And like, it was like, um, they, they didn't realize that how important for, for a mafia group or alleged mafia group is to to be entrenched like this and they you, you can see as you said they exactly knew who they needed for example the banks i i, I even talked to a banker who who went to the regular to the restaurant regularly and he told me yeah they were very nice and everything and then of course it's much easier for them to get a credit 
and to buy a new restaurant and then like every month they pay a few thousand euros probably they pay in cash at the bank and in the end they have a restaurant and there's no way to to prove where the money came from yeah. so and even with the politicians of course like we we couldn't prove and i think there is no proof that there was actual corruption but of course for the police it's much harder to to go into a restaurant to search a restaurant uh to continue the investigation if it's a restaurant where the uh the governor the state governor goes yes. and it's much easier to to search a, like a, a shisha bar or something like this it's much much easier to to continue to do the police work so they they build this network around them that protected them and protect them actually until today and and this is um, is a relevant point uh margarita did you want to, uh, to add something to this i just wanted to to add one thing there is just one thing we we could really see black and white and it was the fact that uh, investigators decided not to go or they couldn't go too deep into financial investigation back then because they were afraid of this connection to the banks so they were saying like I, I cannot remember correct me if I'm wrong David I'm not sure if they were talking about connection to the banks or in the financial world but this was like this statement telling about the that investigators cannot take a too closer look into the the financial part of it because of this connection to the financial world that the alleged drangheta members have which you see it's a, like a big a big like yeah wall in the middle of the investigation if you cannot look that close at the finance so yeah just to say we couldn't find and prove as david uh, said any hint of actual corruption but like this entrenched the situation of entrenchment like really was was a problem for investigators back then and very often we think that uh, we always need uh, what you said margarita actual corruption like the the amount of money that is given maybe physically in exchange for a favor and that that's how the mafia operates systematically but in fact in italy it's exactly the same way often these these kind of networks are built up in favors that are not uh, quantified or being able to be touched or look they don't look like money that is being exchanged it's more of a favor and another favor that will come at a later point in time and in fact uh, one of the one of the earliest studies of the sicilian mafia already um, was showing uh, and i cite here uh, an author um, diego gambetta he was saying actually the mafia would amount to very little if there wasn't the whole system around a whole network Talk around it that, as you said, David, is protecting it. Um, and, and that protection might be conscious to a certain extent, but might also be unconscious. So this naivete is protecting exactly in the same way, actually, as a conscious protection of the network. So you don't need to be um, aware necessarily or to, to have bad intentions. Uh, you might also just be naive and you're still protecting a network which is a criminal network ultimately. And you're helping that network to, uh, to entrench in society and by being entrenched, making the work of policemen, for example, uh, uh, really, really difficult. So Fido uh, never saw light, <laughs> really. It was stopped. Why was it stopped? Do we know anything about this? Um, long story. <laughs> what uh, struck us, like David already already said it, what was struck us when we started looking into the, the Fido documents, so we already, or our colleague Axel and Ludwig already knew from their sources that the investigation like was closed without 
without uh, coming like to to um, how do you say it? like without coming to court. Yeah. It was closed after two two years. And what struck us was that the operational measures connected to the investigation, meaning the wiretap conversation and the observation and all other things police were doing, were closed when the operation really started getting promising. Which means uh, back then what we could uh, reconstruct was that. The like we, David already quoted that there were like at least two undercover agents that infiltrated this Ndrangheta, these alleged Ndrangheta groups, and these two received an invitation to a marriage in uh, in San Luca, and this was the point when like short after it the operation like they they couldn't go there the the two undercover agent and that's that's the point when then the investigation was closed a couple of months later and as david already quoted the interesting thing was that we could gain access to a protocol where we could read that there was a meeting between like the prosecutor, the German prosecutor uh, that was uh, dealing with the case and the police. And he was telling them to motivate them. We are going to work for the for the next five years. These and we need to invest a lot of energy into it, etc. And then suddenly some months after the investigation was closed. And uh, we, it's like... Um, it's probably it's a bit hard to explain because it's like very technical, but probably it all came to a sort of like, let's say, uh, how can we put it? Uh, different point of views between the major prosecutor, <clears throat> the, the, the state prosecutor and the prosecutor who was like looking into the case, right? I don't know if David want to go more into details or we should just leave it like that. But at the end, it was like a sort of, they had different point of views about about this this whole situation, but we have to say that at the end there is even a parliamentary uh, inquiry commission of inquiry who have been built after our documentary in Turinja, looking exactly into this, like looking exactly into why was this operation closed at this early stage. And they are still looking into it, and we still don't know the very exact reason, but it's becoming more and more clear. And actually, almost everything we told in our documentary was then confirmed by this committee of inquiry until now. And 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 this inquiry is still going on. Um, uh, maybe it's worth mentioning that Operation Fido. We are in the year two thousand. Um, so this is now um, twenty years ago, uh, and we are talking about this twenty years later. Uh, why are we talking about this? Is there a relevance also for today? Um, and uh, we've seen, uh, David, you spoke about it, I think you referred to it, there is a new operation now uh, that kind of links back to the same structures that were part of this operation 20 years ago. This new operation is called Operation uh, Eureka and uh, just took place uh, a few months ago, uh, this year, in fact. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about this operation? Why is it relevant uh, today and how does it trace back? to effort and to Operation Fido? Sure. Um, Eureka was in, in May this year. It was like Europol called it well, like the, the biggest international operation against the Ndrangheta because um, it had been going on for since 2019. Mm -hmm. I think it started in Belgium, then Italy was involved, then Germany. And then a lot of other countries as well. They arrested more than 100 alleged uh, members of the Drangheta, or at least connected to, to Drangheta, and especially the clans from San Luca, that are some of the most influential, most important clans. And 
yeah, also uh, some of the alleged members from Operation Fido were arrested, three of them. And that was very interesting for us to see because it finally, also thanks to, to new possibilities of, of investigation, for example, the crypto phones they were using and the police could access like EncroChat, SkyCC. Um, it finally was possible to, according to the investigators, there have been no court cases yet, um, to, to prove that the system or that the airfoot is connected to to all this international network coming from San Luca going to Erfurt to Portugal, but also with uh, cocaine shipments from Latin America going to all the way to Australia. So it shows they, they are still there. The structure, structure is still working and it's not just a, a little outpost there in, in Eastern Germany, but it's like a, a very important uh, place, a very important uh, point of the network for all their, especially the money laundering, of course. Yeah, so Eureka is really about um, drug trafficking and money laundering. So it brings these two aspects together, which were the aspects that we said it's so difficult to link, in fact. And so, um, yeah, through through like encrypted messaging um, messages, um, we, we could basically uh, shed light on the network that uh, we we kind of knew was there already. We didn't know how extensive it was, though, right? We 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 could think about it. We could we could have theories, but we were not sure uh, about uh, about how extended this network is. And so we're speaking about tons of cocaine that come in from Latin America. Um, what was it uh, from Panama, Argentina, Brazil, um, Ecuador, Ecuador as well? Exactly. Uh, Australia as well, on the other hand, right? It was yeah. going to Australia. It was shipped to Australia in the end. Yeah, exactly. And Airfoot in the middle of it. Exactly. Airfoot being connected to all these other places worldwide, indeed, which was like what we already suspected, what we already had hints. Like, for example, we had a lot of information already about the network connected, like the connection between Airfoot and Portugal. So mm -hmm. this was like a confirmation of what we already could see through our to our own researches and then we had like this like global dimension which we already knew the Ndrangheta had because it was not unknown to us that, that this Ndrangheta was importing cocaine from from South America but we could like see its connection like for example exactly the shipment going to Australia and it was really interesting for us like to to see how things uh like evolved from back then. Uh, can you tell me a bit more, David, maybe about the Portugal connection? Why is Portugal important to the group in Germany? Um, yeah, this also started back then when like 20 years ago during or even more than 20 years ago during Operation uh, Fido. There we already saw that uh, some of the alleged members from Airfoot um, invested in Portugal and went there. And um, we like the same investigation, same field work we did in Germany, we did in, in, in Portugal. And we found, I don't remember exactly, like about 40 companies connected to the network, more or less 10 restaurants in, Lis in Lisbon, like in the middle of the tourist uh, hotspots and in Coimbra, in Braga and other places. So we saw like they were doing the same... Uh, the same system that they had started in 
in Erfurt, they were doing Portugal now. And even one of the, like, of the most of the capos, local, who was alleged to be one of the local bosses in Erfurt, one of them went to Portugal and, and like, managed all this. And then in the year, I don't know which year, but Italian prosecutors, they found a, a scratch book of, uh, of the wife of this alleged uh, couple or ex former couple in Erfurt. Um, and it showed like there were the names of restaurants and a lot of sums of, of money flowing. It's hard to like, it's not easy. It's not like, okay, here money going from here to there, but like it's possible to read it that way that all these restaurants are connected, as, as I said before. Like it's, they are part of a network and it's not like being okay, it's just family. And then there's one cousin opening a restaurant in in Portugal and he's doing his thing there, but there's money flowing. They all are connected to to a system. So um, yeah, and perhaps um, to explain a bit how it works, um, it's also worth to talk about some restaurants in Rome, in Italy, they, they bought and opened because this is quite interesting. Like they bought also very, very good expensive restaurants in the middle of Rome for more than 1 million euro. Mm -hmm. And um, then there was a case made in Italy because in Italy it's much easier than, for example, in Germany to, to seize uh, money or to seize houses if, or restaurants if they are connected to, to somehow connected to the mafia and if you cannot prove where the money is coming from. So there was a case opened and the prosecutors tried to, to seize these restaurants in Rome. And like one argument, and in the end, the alleged mafia members won. One argument was, okay, of course, we can buy these restaurants. We have so many restaurants in Germany. Um, it's easy for us to have one million to buy a restaurant here. Or probably they paid even more. Um, but this shows exactly like how important Germany and how important this is in all their money laundering scheme uh, to have a place like Erfurt. Mm -hmm. If I can add something on that, uh, this is most likely also going to be one of the problem there is going to be also with Operation Eureka because this operation concentrates, as David already said, also on Portugal and on the alleged money that were laundered there into the gastronomy. But this money, it's more likely that the argument is going to be this money comes from the very successful activities we had in Germany. I can imagine, I cannot know for sure, of course, but this is like, if you have a flourishing, if you have had in the past a very flourishing business somewhere in the world, like in this case in Germany, it's very hard to prove that this money back then came from money laundering and then you just invested it. So it's um, it's actually very difficult. It's something which should have happened if then back then in Germany when Operation Fido was ongoing and then stopped. This was the time where this thing could have been proven if this ever happened, of course, but... Uh... Uh, you're totally right. And I think this is also sometimes uh, something that gets forgotten that we are not speaking just about money laundering. We are speaking about investments in the legal economy. And the first step might be money laundering and investments might come from drug money, for example, or from money generally from illegal activity. But that is at time one, whenever that time is. And then over time, actually, these businesses, they are one, two, 
people three steps away from the illegal source and they become in, in a sense legal and then it's going to be very difficult to to go backwards and and prove where it originally came from one can even argue maybe at this point it's not illegal anymore so we shouldn't be doing anything uh, about it really uh, only that when then uh, operations such as Eureka uh, happen, uh, we discover that in fact the people involved in it are involved in drugs, for example, or are part of a criminal organization, which is a criminal organization. So we cannot argue that these businesses are completely clean because they still trace back uh, to uh, a criminal organization whose main activity is of criminal uh, nature. Um, I'm, I'm aware of the time. Uh, for us, at least, it's very early in the morning. So uh, I would uh, I would maybe ask each of you if you want to add anything, if there's any points that we've forgotten in this discussion that you think are are relevant and we should uh, should discuss. And then I would uh, I would wrap this um, this up. Um, and thank you, obviously, for for this really interesting discussion. So, who wants to go first with a few final comments? I think uh, we almost said everything. I think was important to say. I don't know. I'm looking to David if he has something to add. Maybe then some ideas might pop up to my mind too. Well, maybe I'm. I don't know. I might add something to about Operation Eureka. What for me is so particular about this operation is that for me it shows why then Drangheta is so successful uh, globally. Because you see, um, it's so striking. You see, because if once you are like like we've been investigating this for for so many years now, then you see you you know the connections, and then then you see okay, we have one one of the restaurant owners in Erfurt is arrested, then his cousin is living. In, in Australia, then you have another cousin, or I don't know, they are connected in Munich, who are directly connected to drug trafficking in South America, and then they have someone uh, living there. So you have this core family uh, doing business all around the world on the one hand, and they keep it very close, but on the other hand, um, you they work together like with everyone in the criminal underworld like they work together with chinese money launderers they work in brazil they work together with the pcc selling the drugs to the, the cocaine to them work in colombia they even there are chats they talk about buying weapons in pakistan selling them to to brazilian gangs so it's really crazy how connected this uh, criminal world is yeah it's it's basically the global aspect to it but then at the same time uh, interesting how local this is yeah. Uh, so that's that's how we started, and I think it's it's a good way to uh, to wrap it all up. We started asking the question: Why are we even talking about Andrangheta in in East Germany? Why are we having a panel session uh, about such a small place? Because it is a small place, East Germany or Thuringia or Erfurt, even even more a city just and. And just a few a few members organized sitting there and investing in the legal economy. Why would we care? Why is this relevant? And and I hope uh, for whoever is going to see this recording as well um, that that what really came out of the discussion is that it is relevant. In fact, um, it is connected to more than just Germany, to more than just Europe, even. Um, and and the only way to try to understand what is going on, though, is not to start from looking at the global to to begin with but to go really on the on the ground in the field and starting to step by step 
put together uh, the information to then um, to then build up I uh, build up the whole network. Uh, we have a question in the q and I'm, uh, I'm informed, so let's take this question before uh, wrapping up. Uh, Carlos Morales asks, even though they are known for working in the shadows and never truly putting themselves in the spotlight, which crime operations are the most dangerous one you think they control or they participate in? So... Crime operations, I might not be 100% sure whether they mean criminal activities, possibly. What is the most dangerous element and dimension of the of the Ndrangheta? Like I would say, every criminal activity is dangerous indeed. Of course, like drug trafficking is for me, like drug trafficking, cocaine trafficking mostly is like the most criminal activity uh, controlled by the Ndrangheta. And I think this is a very dangerous, I think this is a very dangerous one just because of the fact that it gives the Ndrangheta like an incredible amount of money out of which, all right, sorry, I, I was just distracted by the recording project. So I think like the cocaine trafficking, which is the main source of income of the Ndrangheta is also one of the most, of the most like dangerous criminal activity for, for the legal world. Just because of the fact, actually, that um, they get such an immense amount of money out of it, which then allows them to infiltrate legal economy and the legal world. So I would probably look in that way, even if every criminal activity they are involved to, it's, of course, dangerous. David, do you agree with that? Sure. And um, yes, it's again, Operation Eureka shows, um, for example, there were a lot of pictures they were sending around on on encrypted phones, uh, pictures of weapons. So they are, even though they don't appear, even though they don't walk around the streets with their weapons, they have them. And if they need, they use them. So yeah, it's everything connected to to them and to drug trafficking, as Margarita said, is, is dangerous. Yeah, so not, not to forget that it might uh, it might look just very uh, nice and welcoming to walk into a pizzeria that we, we cannot connect it back to an organization that is in fact uh, buying arms, storing arms uh, and letting tons of cocaine flow uh, into Europe. Uh, so being the connecting the connecting node in, uh, in this network, um, which again brings us back to why it is really important to put this network um, together. Uh, maybe do we have another question in fact, um, yes, by Judith, and she asks whether you could comment on the collaboration of Andrangheta with German entrepreneurs in Turingia, the so-called Zona Grigia, so the gray zone um, between. So how, how does it work? Do, do entrepreneurs collaborate with Andrangheta? Do they do so consciously, unconsciously? I think we answered it a lot while David was talking about the... Um the uh what do you say the, the people that when we were talking about the people that allegedly went to this uh to this how do you say marriage in in san luca back back then back at the time of operation fido and as we were saying before it's like difficult to prove if this was like as we said it was just more like being in touch with them so right so it's not like the for what we could see we have we don't have any proof that any of the uh, alleged Ndrangheta members even 
every uh, do you say ever corrupted actually uh, some of these of these people from the legal world but we can say for sure we can say for sure that they were in contact with lots of them and this is like uh, it's not like corruption as you could imagine it like buying these people but it's building up a network that as david said could always be useful for several operations like for example for investing money or for getting like the permission to i don't know build up something more and uh, it's uh, in a in a like in a city as Erfurt, for example, which as I said before is not a big city, but like a smaller reality. Even if it's not that small, it's not like a village. But uh, and it's actually it's very important to have this connection because these are the one that like opens you lots of doors. But as I said, we couldn't prove any any actual corruption there. David, do you want to add anything to this? No, I think. Okay, perfect. Then uh, thank you very much for the questions. Um, I'm 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 very happy that we had some interaction uh, because in in my time zone this is six thirty in the morning, and I hope you um, uh, you are in a different time zone you uh, you that ask the questions. Uh, but if not, thank you very much for participating uh, in uh, in this panel. Thank you, uh, even if you are in a different time zone that you've participated here. Um, uh, watch the document. That would be my final uh, point. It is uh, one of the best done uh, documentaries on the Ndrangheta. Uh, we've watched a few scenes together, but uh, there's so much more in the documentary uh, that uh, that we couldn't maybe talk about. That is just more uh, detailed information uh, that makes this, this documentary just really uh, worth uh, watching. Thank you, Margarita. Thank you, David, for, um, for this discussion. And uh, I would uh, leave it here and say goodbye to everyone. Thank you. Thank you all. And I also posted the link to our documentary in the chat just for everyone to, to click on it if they want to. Perfect. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you, Zora, for that. Thank you, Zora. Great moderation. Thank you so much. Thank you.